Peace be to you. We have now come to the end of our conversations together. I'm sure that you've noticed in the course of all of these records how many imperfections there were. There may have been some words repeated. I possibly may have mispronounced some words. Recordings themselves might have been inadequate. All this is due to the fact that we have not read. We have spoken to you out of our own heart. I'm not satisfied with these recordings as they are, and I am sure that you are not. But I wish you would regard them just as a kind of maybe a piece of carbon. I was about to say a diamond. Rather as a piece of carbon. And perhaps if the light and fire of your own charity shines through the carbon, well, then they might turn into a diamond. So in conclusion about these, everything that is poor in them is mine. Everything that is good in them is the Lord's. If you have followed all of these, I perhaps have led you step by step, very much like our blessed Lord led the woman at the well. You will remember that when he met her at noon, there were a number of steps that she took in coming to know our blessed Lord. First of all, she was rather discourteous to him. And she said to him, How is it that thou, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan? The Jews and the Samaritans did not speak. That was all our Lord was to her at first, just a member of another nationality with whom the Samaritans had no relations. And then as she talked a little longer to him, she perceived that he was a gentleman. Or she called him sir. And then in a few minutes more, when he began to put his finger onto her soul and to stir it into a kind of uneasiness, in particularly to tell her that she had five husbands and the man with whom she was living was not her husband, then she said that he was a prophet. This was a step further in getting to know him. And then she went a little bit further when she said, I know that the Messiah is coming. And our blessed Lord said to her, and think of how surprising it must have been to her. And he said, it is I, the Christ, the Messiah, who speaks to you. Well, she was so excited when she heard that, she left her water pot at the well 
and ran back into the village. A short time later, she comes out with a number of village people. And then, then comes the last name. He is called the Savior of the world. So perhaps I may have led you to some understanding of our blessed Lord, namely, first of all, he was just a Jew. Then the great gentleman. And then after that, the prophet. Then Christ the Messiah. And finally, the Savior of the world. That is really what he is. The Savior of the world. And we never know him until we know that truth. He's Savior because he died on the cross for us. Whenever there's silence round about me, by day or night, I am startled by a cry. It came down from the cross the first time I heard it. And I went out and searched and found a man in the throes of crucifixion. And I said, I will take you down. And I tried to take the nails out of his feet. But, he said, let them be. For I cannot be taken down until every man, woman, and child come together to take me down. But I said, what can I do? I cannot bear your cry. And he said, go into the And tell everyone that you meet, there is a man on the cross. That's what I've told you. In all of these hours that we have spent together, there was a man on the cross. Now through that vision, may I bid you first to look at the world and then to look at your own soul. First of all, at the world. We are part of it. It is our world. We are responsible for it. And on the last day, we are going to be judged in the context of that world. Our blessed Lord said that he would say to us, I was hungry. And you gave me to eat. I was thirsty. And you gave me to drink. 
I was naked, and you clothed me. And we who are saved, the elect, will ask, when? When? When did we see you hungry and give you to eat, thirsty and give you to drink, and naked did we clothe thee? We will say, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. In other words, there is the Christus incognitus, the unknown Christ in the world, in the poor, in the slum in the favelas. This is our world. We cannot know Christ apart from them. I know there are many who are predicting disaster for the world, particularly in this atomic age of ours. Even in the close of the last century, there were some who were dimly envisaging this disaster. One day, two great French scientists of the name of Claude Bernard and Emile Boutroux paid a visit to a French publisher whose name was Jean Coeur. And these scientists said to Jean Coeur, We have just begun to lisp the alphabet of destruction. And in the next century, we will have completed the alphabet. And Jean Cour said, And when that day comes, I think that God will come down from heaven like a night watchman rattling his keys. And he will say, Gentlemen, it's closing time, and we will have to start all over again. This is the pessimistic side of the world. Then there are those who think of communism and its dangers, which indeed are very real. We are never to be without hope. Remember that great Russian novelist and writer of the 19th century, who was a kind of a prophet. He saw communism coming in Russia long before it ever existed, long before anyone ever thought of it. But he also saw it ending in Russia, too. He foresaw a day when the devils would come into Russia and possess it, body and soul. And then he calls for the gospel. And he picks up that particular passage in the gospel where our blessed Lord drives the devil out of a young man into the swine. 
around the sea. Dostoevsky says, that's my Russia, my beloved Russia. It will one day be filled with devils, but the devils will be driven out of Russia, and they will be pushed back and back and back into the sea. And there they will be drowned. And Russia will sit at the feet of Christ and learn his gospel. Yes, there's hope. Hope even in the midst of all of our trials and disasters and darkness for we are never without God. If we but return to him, all can be changed. They can be changed as noise describes the home of Swinburne. You remember the English poet Swinburne who wrote Glory to man in the highest for man is the master. Alfred Noyes, the English essayist before his conversion, visited Swinburne at his paternal home in Bonchurch, England. Swinburne took him into the library, where Swinburne said he wrote his atheistic poetry. They began talking about Christianity. Noise said he literally spat out his words. Years passed. Swinburne went to meet the God whom he denied and was his judge. Noise later on was received into the church. Noise went back again to Bond Church, walked up that same long line of lilac. Before him, he saw children clothed in white. As they walked, they dropped flowers. He followed them into the home. It was now a convent, a convent of the Sacred Heart. Today, it was the feast of Corpus Christi, the feast of the body of Christ. Noise blows into the chapel. The chapel was the old library. And at the moment of benediction, when Noise raised his eyes to look at our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, his eyes also fell upon that great window which he had seen and his first visit. And immediately above the monstrance, on that window were the initials of the paternal Swinburne, unchanged, I-H-S, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus. And thus, all things can be changed by the power of God 
so sweetly and so gently. That for the world. Now, as regards your soul, May I speak of some intimacies of love? There are three degrees of intimacy. The first one is speech. We would never know that anyone loved us unless he told us so. A word is the summation of a character. All that a person is and all that he will be. We need only hear a person speak and we can say he's a kind man or he is a cruel man or he is an educated man. So the first intimacy of all love is we must be told, we must hear it. And God has spoken. And I told you about that in Revelation. Open up your scriptures. You hear the word of God. But is that all? It is not enough just merely to hear the voice of the beloved. We want to see the beloved. We want to see words born on human lips. We want to see the earnestness of a visage and the flash of an eye. And so if God is really to love us, he must not only be heard, he must be seen. And one day, an angel came out from the great white throne of light and came to a humble virgin kneeling in prayer and said, Hail, full of grace. These were not words, they were the Word. The Word became flesh, dwelt amongst us. And so God was seen in the form of man. And you see him too with the eyes of faith. You will see him in the Blessed Sacrament with the eyes of faith. You will see him in his church, the continuation of his incarnation. You will see him also in the poor. That's not all. Oh yes, I might say that the speech and the vision of God is very much like the relationship between radio and television. The Old Testament is radio. We hear the voice of God but do not see him. The New Testament is television, where we not only hear but see God. But is there not yet another intimacy of love, more sacred and profound still? There is one so delicate that the greatest insult anyone can show us who knows us not is to make use of it, and that is the intimacy of touch. And so, if our blessed Lord is to exhaust all of the intimacies of love, 
must touch and be touched. He was touched by Thomas, by the Syro-Phoenician woman, and he touched the leper and the sick. And as for you, if the gift of faith comes to you, you will have this gift of touch, which is reserved only for the intimates. The ecstasy of holy communion. For just as in marriage, the peak of love is the unity of two in one flesh. So in the Eucharist, the peak of love is the unity of two in one spirit. And it is my fervent prayer to God that there may come to each and every one of you who listen to me this third and most beautiful of all intimacies. That is your soul as regards the sacraments. Now let me say something about things, the world in which you live. Every single action of yours, your daily work, it makes no difference what you do. Sweeping the street, teaching classes. Everything could be made a prayer. Every action is a kind of a blank check. A blank check that has value only if the name of our Lord is signed to it. That is why St. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ. And so the tiny little actions of your daily life, as a mother, as a father, as a workman, as a teacher, as a nurse, as a secretary, all of these can be divinized, sacramentalized, provided you bring to them the divine intention. This is prayer, prayer of action down in the gutter of a city street. There's a drop of water, soil, dirty, and stagnant. And way up in the heavens, a gentle sunbeam saw it leap from out the azure sky down to the drop, kissed it, thrilled it through and through with new strange lives and hopes and lifted it up higher and higher and higher, beyond the clouds, and one day left it as a flake of immaculate snow on a mountain top. And so your humdrum routine, workaday world, can be transmuted and changed just on condition that you do it all the name of Christ. It is not important what you do in this world, it is how you do it. Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage. And why should he who plays the part of a king, 
glory in his tinsel crown and tin sword and think that he's better than the one who plays the role of a peasant. When the curtain goes down, they're just actors. And when the curtain of our life goes down, we will not be asked what role we played. We will only be asked how well we played the role that was assigned to us. So it will not be hard to save your soul. But let me tell you this. Being a Catholic will never prevent you from sinning. But I can tell you one thing. It will take all the fun out of it. And the reason it will take all the fun out of it is because you once have loved. You know what love is. No one else. And that is why sin in the scripture is always called adultery. Because it's a false love. Oh yes, I know you will find people who will cut corners and will play loose and cheat commit adultery, avoid paying their taxes, ruin their neighbor's reputation and the like, and they apparently do not seem to have any bumps on their conscience. But they have no peace. No peace. So that if we are ready to love, we do have to have a cross. This is the cross of Christ. We cannot escape it. We try to. I slipped his finger. I escaped his feet. I ran and hid for him I feared to meet. One day I passed him fettered on a tree. turned his head and looked and beckoned me. Neither by speed nor speech could he prevail. Each hand and foot was pinioned by a nail. He could not run nor clasp me if he tried. But his eye, he bade me reach his side. For pity's sake, said I, I'll set you free. Nay, take this cross and follow me. This yoke is easy, this burden light, not hard nor grievous if you wear it tight. And so did I follow him who could not move and un caught captive in the hands of love. Our time is up. I must take leave of you now. 
I have enjoyed being with you. I hope you have profited. Perhaps our hearts have grown a bit together. They do, in long conversations. But may I remind you that your heart, my heart, are not perfect in shape and contour like a valentine heart. There is a small piece missing out of the side of every human heart. And that may be to symbolize a piece that was torn out of the universal heart of humanity on the cross. But I think the real meaning is that when God made your heart, he found it so good, so lovable, that he kept a small sample of it in heaven and sent the rest of your heart into this world where you would try to be happy, but where you could not be perfectly happy because you did not have a whole heart to love with. And so he has always reminded you that to be truly peaceful, to be really happy, to be really wholehearted, you must go back again to God to recover that peace that he has been keeping for you from all eternity. Your heart will be there in heaven and please God. So will mine. I will see you in the heart of God. Bye now. And God love you.